As we said this morning, the book of Ruth is the Hebrew version of Cinderella. Ruth is a young woman who escapes a life of reproach and poverty by meeting a wealthy prince. Boaz sweeps Ruth off her feet and makes her his bride. The difference, of course, between Ruth and Cinderella is that the book of Ruth is no fairy tale. There are no pumpkins turned into carriages in this story. This is a real-life drama set amidst the hardships of everyday circumstances. And the miraculous occurrences that take place in the book are the result not of a fairy godmother, but the result of God, our Heavenly Father. Ruth is one of two books in the Bible named after a woman. The other, of course, is Esther. The book of Esther is the story of a Hebrew woman living in a Gentile land, while Ruth is the story of a Gentile woman living in the land of the Hebrews. And what's interesting is that both stories are prophetic of the times in which we live. For 2,000 years now, the Jews have been displaced from their homeland. They've been scattered among the Gentiles, just as Esther lived away from her homeland. And the book of Esther foreshadows God's providential protection and preservation of the Hebrew nation while living in Gentile lands over the last two millenniums. Ruth, on the other hand, foreshadows God's plan for the Gentiles. Though Ruth is an outsider, she receives the blessings that God intended for the Hebrews by marrying into an Israeli family. We, too, have married into God's promises for the Jews. We, too, have married a wealthy Hebrew prince named Jesus Christ. We have fallen in love. He has swept us off our feet. And in Christ, we have an inheritance with God's people, the Jews. It's interesting that the book of Ruth is the eighth book of the Hebrew canon of Scripture. Let's recount the books up to this point. Genesis, of course, the book of beginnings. Exodus speaks of redemption. Leviticus teaches us to worship. Numbers, how to walk with God. Deuteronomy, the importance of obedience. Joshua is all about our victory over our enemies. Judges tells us what happens when we fail to follow God fully. And the ninth book, which we'll get to next time, is the book of Samuel, which describes the establishment of God's kingdom. Now, think of these nine books as an outline for Hebrew history. The beginnings, redemption, worship, walk, obedience, victory, failure, but then ultimately God's kingdom. What's interesting, though, is that between the failure of Israel and the coming of God's kingdom, God calls out a Gentile bride for his son, Jesus Christ. And thus, the book of Ruth fits snugly and properly between the failure of the Jews and the coming of the kingdom. And that's what God is doing today in the world, calling out a bride for his son, Jesus Christ. The book of Ruth. How neat. Ruth is part of the Hebrew Megillah, or a collection of five books that were read at the different Hebrew feasts. And the book of Ruth was always read 
at the Feast of Pentecost. Later, of course, Pentecost will become the birthday for the church. Acts chapter 2, the beginnings of the end time harvest took place at Pentecost. How fitting that on Pentecost, the Jews read the book of Ruth, God calling out a Gentile bride for his son. In so many numerous ways, the story of Ruth parallels our relationship with Jesus Christ. We'll see as we get into it. The story begins, now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled, (coughs) and the pastor coughed, that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife was Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. The book of Ruth is a romance, a real story about real people. But it's also a deeper revelation of spiritual truth. In many ways, it's an allegory. And the Holy Spirit even goes as far as to arrange the names of the people involved to make his allegorical point. Elimelech, for example, means God, my God is king. Naomi means pleasant. Bethlehem means house of bread. Judah means praise. Ephrathra means fruitful. Now check this out. You got a man whose God is king. He's living with a pleasant wife in prosperity in the house of bread. He's praising God and he's bearing fruit. What more can a man want? But a famine tests Elimelech's faith. And he bails. Rather than stay put in the will of God and trust God to provide his needs, we're told in verse 2, they went to the country of Moab and remained there. And look at the calamity that occurred to them while in Moab. Verse 3, then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left and her two sons. And now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Malon and Chilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. Malon means sickness. And Chilion means wasting. Both boys may have had physical problems from birth. And the complications ended up leading to early exits. Both boys die and they leave behind a grieving mom and two young widows. Hey, so far, this story teaches us that the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. I would rather be in the will of God, in the midst of howling winds and lightning storms. That would be a safer place to be than in the strongest fortress outside His will. We are never safer, we are never more secure than when we are in the palm of his hand, in the center of his will. Elimelech discovered that. Now, a relationship here forms between Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth. You know, relationships with mother-in-laws are notoriously rocky. It's been said, behind every successful man 
is a good woman and a surprised mother-in-law. Once a friend and I were talking about our mothers-in-law. He mentioned that his mother-in-law lived nearby. I said that my mother-in-law lived in Oregon. He said, wow, I love my mother-in-law so much that if she lived that far away, I'd get her to move. I said, I've tried, but she won't go to Japan. I'm just kidding. I love my mother-in-law. And we have a great relationship. And so did Naomi and her two daughter-in-laws, Ruth and Orpah. In fact, when Naomi announces that she's moving back to the land of Israel, the girls begin to weep. They don't want to see her go. Naomi assures them that it's okay. And she explains to them that they'll have a better chance to remarry if they stay behind in Moab. Orpah kisses his Her mother-in-law goodbye and takes off. She stays in Moab. But Ruth, she decides to stay with Naomi. In fact, she says in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, one of the most beautiful expressions of devotion to a relationship. She says, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. What a beautiful example of real friendship. These verses are often read at weddings. But it surprises people to discover that they were originally descriptive of a relationship between two friends. It really has nothing to do at all with a marriage relationship. It's actually the relationship between a woman and her mother-in-law, two close friends. When Naomi arrives back in Bethlehem, the local women don't even recognize her. In verse 19, they squawk, Is this Naomi? Hey, the years outside of God's will had taken a toll even on Naomi's appearance. She's grayed. She's wrinkled. Crow's feet have landed on her forehead, on her temples. She's aged. Have you ever noticed people who were 30 but looked 50? You know, sin can take a heavy toll even upon a person's appearance. It's been said nature has a lot to do with a person's appearance, but after age 30, each person is responsible for his his or her own face. I like that. Naomi tells them, do not call me Naomi or pleasant, but call me Mara or bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full and the Lord has brought me home again empty. She wasn't completely empty, though, because there was a beautiful young lady who had pledged to her her devotion. Verse 22 tells us that Naomi and Ruth moved to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest in the month of April. And that detail is what sets up what happens next. In chapter 2, verse 1, we read, There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, His name was Boaz, and here we find Prince Charming, Boaz. 
Did you hear about the young man who said to his sweetheart, Darling, I'm not wealthy and good looking. And I don't have a mansion and a Mercedes and a yacht like Gerald Green. But I love you, darling, with all my heart. The girl looked up at him and she said, Well, I love you too, but tell me more about this Gerald Green. (laughs) Well, Boaz was a Gerald Green. A Hebrew heartthrob. He was a barley baron and an eligible bachelor. Many a girl would have loved to have had Boaz as a beau. What makes the situation even more intriguing is that Boaz is related to Ruth. He is a goel or a near kinsman, as the Hebrews put it. And according to Hebrew culture, it was the obligation of the family member closest to the deceased brother to take his widowed wife and raise up a child to preserve the brother's lineage. The Hebrews called it the law of the Liverite marriage. Levir means brother-in-law. And Deuteronomy chapter 25 describes this law in detail if you want to go back and look more closely at it. It's interesting that when Ruth left Moab, she thought she was forfeiting her best opportunities for marriage to remain loyal to Naomi, but not so. I think it's just like God to reward a person who puts commitment before convenience, who puts loyalty before license, who acts on devotion rather than sheer emotion. God is prone to bless a person who forfeits a privilege to remain true to a principle. God is working here on behalf of Ruth. Now, the meaning of the name Boaz is also interesting. It means Lord of the harvest. And guess who Boaz represents? Jesus is our Lord of the harvest. Now, the Hebrew welfare system consisted of more than just doling out funds. When a field was harvested, the landowner was required to leave behind a little for the poor. But it was their responsibility to go out in the fields, join with the workers, and glean or gather up the leftovers. And this is what Ruth does. She goes out to glean. And notice what we're told in verse 3. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Notice, she just so happened. Understand the rabbis have an expression... Coincidence is not a kosher word. In other words, there is no such thing as coincidence or happenstance. The writer here is simply using a figure of speech. In reality, nothing just happens. Every roll of the dice, every bounce of the football is determined by God's providence. That's what Proverbs 16 verse 33 tells us. The lot is cast into the lap. But it's every decision is from the Lord. There is no such thing as happenstance. God is at work behind the scenes, manipulating the circumstances to accomplish his purposes. And here the Holy Spirit begins to play Cupid. He's at work on behalf of Ruth. He's engineering a romantic rendezvous. Now, when Boaz comes home from Bethlehem, guess who catches his eye? He rushes up to the foreman in in charge of the gleaners 
And he asks about the new girl. Who in the world is this beautiful babe out in the fields? God is working to get Ruth in a position where Boaz can see her. He's working on both ends of the deal here. Boaz instructs Ruth to glean only from his field and then commands his men not to touch her. He offers her protection. And then he commends her for the devotion that she's shown to Naomi. He even invites her up to the hacienda to eat with his household. And when she leaves to go back into the fields, Boaz says to the men in charge, verse 15, Let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. Also let grain from the bundles fall purposely for her. In other words, if she starts to glean in the area that hasn't yet been harvested, don't stop her. Go ahead and let her. He even instructs the men to toss out a few bundles of grain on purpose to make it easier for Ruth to gather and to glean. All this and more is how our Boaz, Jesus Christ, has treated us. Understand, we caught his eye long before we decided to follow him. He looked out into the fields and he saw you. He saw me. He chose us before the foundation of the world. And he wants us to glean only from his fields. In other words, he wants us to bring our needs to him. He wants us to let Jesus alone be the source and sustenance of our heart's deepest longings. Jesus offers us protection, a place at his table. And he even delights in tossing out little bundles on purpose for us to accumulate and to relish and to enjoy. But in order to receive these blessings, we have to glean only from his field. We have to remain in Christ. We can't let our hearts wander. We can't look to the world for our sustenance. We need to lean only upon Jesus. When Ruth comes home with such a huge haul of barley... Naomi asks her in verse 19, where have you gleaned today? It's obvious someone has shown Ruth some special attention. And when Ruth tells her about Boaz, Naomi jumps for joy. In verse 20, she says, Blessed be he of the Lord, who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. This man is a relation of ours, one of our close relatives. Naomi gets excited. She starts to hear the wedding bells ring. But Boaz is the Lord of the harvest, and the barley still needs to be harvested. Naomi knows that the nuptials will not begin until the barley harvest is complete. Guys, we too are in the midst of a harvest, a harvest of souls. And Jesus is the Lord of this harvest. At the moment, there's work to do, but one day the barley will all be in the barn And Jesus will come for his bride, and the wedding feast of the Lamb will begin. In the meantime, though, we need to be patient. We need to help the Lord finish his harvest. When he's done, then he'll come back for his bride, and we'll spend forever with him. In chapter 3, Ruth and Naomi finally get tired of all this barley. They set their eyes now on Boaz. And Naomi, this wise mother, she knows the time has come for Ruth to make her move. It's now the end of the harvest. And Naomi knows where Boaz will be. He only has a short time to process his grain. So 
he will be sleeping down at the threshing floor. Now, the threshing floor was a large outdoor pavilion where the oxen would beat down the grain and process the wheat. And there the men slept to protect the crop from uh, thievery or from any kind of vandalism. And Naomi tells Ruth what to do next in verses 3 and 4. She says, therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself. Put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies. You shall go in, uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what you should do. Now, here's Naomi's plan. Ruth needs to doll herself up a little bit. Take a bubble bath. Then dab on some of that Chanel number five. Put on your designer dress and slip down to the threshing floor. After Boaz has dinner, when he settles down to go to sleep, Ruth, you need to walk up and just lay down by his feet and uncover his toes. Now, when you uncover his toes, that ensures the fact that later in the night he's going to wake up because his toes are going to get cold. And when he wakes up, he'll see you. And that's when you can make, you know, that's when the wedding can be suggested. Let's pause, though, and think about this for a minute. Because here is also a way that you and I can abide in Christ. First, make sure that you're washed. Your spirit has been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. But we also need to cleanse our minds and our thoughts and our emotions with the word of God. Second, make sure you're anointed. Dab on a little of God, Chanel number five. The Holy Spirit. Rely on the Spirit. Ask Him to fill you and make you aware of God's presence and love and power. Third, make sure you're dressed for success. Put on Christ. Begin to form a new identity. Learn to see yourself as God sees you. Holy and righteous and blameless. A joint heir with Jesus. A child of God. Realize you're a new person in Christ. And fourthly, Make sure you lie down at Jesus' feet. Humble yourself before the Master. Spend time in His presence. And then do whatever He tells you to do. Ruth follows Naomi's instructions exactly. And in verse 9, the cold toes work. Boaz wakes up. And he sees this woman at his feet and he asks her, Who are you? And Ruth proves she's a liberated woman. Because she pops the question. She says, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. The expression, take your maidservant under your wing, or more figuratively, under your cloak, is the equivalent of a marriage proposal. Boaz seems just as happy, though, to oblige as Ruth was to ask, And he would love to take her as his bride, but there's one problem. As I often say, no wedding ever goes off without a hitch. And here's the problemo. Boaz is not the nearest kinsman. 
There's a closer kin who has first dibs at redeeming Elimelech's land and marrying his daughter. And here is proof that Boaz was a principled man. Remember, this story takes place in the days of the judges when everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That is, everyone except Ruth and Boaz. In an age of compromise, it's so refreshing to find two people willing to do things God's way by his book. And understand, this was risky. Boaz and Ruthie are in love. Marriage is the goal. What if this near kinsman exercises his right? Boaz will be busted. But he believes in God. He trusts in God. He trusts that God is in control. And if God wants he and Ruth to marry, God will see that it happens. That's faith. Boaz knows that the worst move that he can make is to take a shortcut around the will and laws of God. If he takes this matter into his own hands and tries to manipulate and massage the situation, he can foul everything up. He believes, and rightly so, that what's done God's way will never lack God's blessing. Do you believe that truth? Do you believe that what is done God's way will always gain God's blessing? When will we learn that the little shortcuts that Satan throws up at us end up, they always end up being long detours. Guys, the shortest distance between two points is the will of God. You remember the last five chapters in the book of Judges. Society was nasty, ruthless, barbaric. Ugly things were happening across the country, and yet here are two people who at the same time choose to live a life and do a marriage God's way. And as a result, God blesses them. And God will bless anyone who follows their example. Guys, always trust God. Always do the right thing. If Boaz had not been a man of conviction, he would have ended up like everyone else in the rest of the nation. Ruthless. Ruthless. Note, too, the precaution that he takes in verse 14. So she lay at his feet until morning, and she arose before one could recognize another. And then he said, do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Boaz did all he could to save Ruth's reputation from the rumor mill. He didn't want to give the town gossips anything to chew on. Ladies, a guy who really loves you will do everything he can to protect your reputation, not put it in jeopardy. And at the end of chapter 3, Boaz makes another smart move. Every soon-to-be husband needs to follow his example. He portions out to Ruth six ephahs of barley, or about six bushels, an enormous amount, and then he tells her to take it home to her mother-in-law, Naomi. He's getting in good with mom. (laughs) making points with his mother-in-law. What a guy, this Boaz. Now, in the last verse of chapter 3, Naomi gives Ruth a near impossible command. Then she said, sit still, my daughter, 
until you know how the matter will turn out. For the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. Ruth's life, her whole future, the love of her life is in limbo. And she's expected to sit still? That she is. You see, here's the acid test for faith. After you've done all that you can do, are you willing to sit still and trust God to do his work? In Psalm 46, verse 10, the Lord himself tells us, be still and know that I am God. Are you willing to sit still? Are you willing to be patient and to trust in God? We need to learn to wait on God. Naomi was right. Boaz went straight to the gate of the city. And he found Ruth's nearer kin. And he told the man about the property of Elimelech. And he asked if he wanted to exercise his option to buy it back. And I'm sure Boaz's heart skipped a beat when he said that he would. But the man still didn't know about Ruth. The ground and the girl went together. This is a package deal, the land and the lady. And when Boaz reads the man, the fine print, (laughs) tells him about Ruth, he backs down. He says in verse 6 that another wife will ruin his inheritance. In other words, what would my wife back home think? Imagine coming home at night, you know, walking in and saying, honey, Guess who I brought home for dinner? (laughs) Honey, I finally got some of that help you've been wanting. You know, last night, honey, when you said that you do the work of two people? (sighs) I mean, (laughs) it'd be pretty hard to break it to your wife that she's now got company. Yes, if he marries Ruth, it will ruin far more than just his inheritance. The man follows custom and he makes it official. He takes off his sandal. And he gives it to Boaz. It was an ancient way of saying that he was passing on to Boaz his right to walk the land and to marry the lady. And Boaz couldn't have been happier. Guys, all of this strikes a lot closer to home than you might think. We've just celebrated Christmas. And I'll bet not once did you think about the story of Ruth this past Christmas, and yet you should have. For the book of Ruth and the Christmas story go together. You see, this wicked world, the land on which our sandal treads, once belonged to God. But when the Creator made man, He gave over dominion of this earth to us. Of course, we sinned. And we forfeited that dominion and control of this earth over to Satan. We know in John chapter 16, verse 7, that Jesus said that Satan is the ruler of this world. This world is now being possessed and occupied by Satan. But according to God's law, when a parcel of land is lost, there's always the possibility of redemption. It can be bought back. And that's what's illustrated here in the story of Ruth. Redemption can take place, but the person redeeming has to be a near kinsman. It has to be a blood relative. And that's why Jesus was born of Mary in Bethlehem. He joined the human race 
so that he could become our blood relative, our near kinsman. And as our relative, he is in position to redeem a world that has been lost to sin and Satan. On the cross, Jesus paid the redemption price. The question, though, is why did he do it? Jesus is not only a citizen of earth, but he is Lord of the universe. He owns billions of planets just like ours. I'm sure if the only thing that Jesus had to gain by going to the cross was just another planet, he would have spared himself the trouble. No, Jesus, like Boaz, was not as interested in another piece of land as he was in a particular lady. The land and the lady were a package deal. And Jesus redeemed the earth in order to marry the bride that came with it. He wanted the lady. Jesus is our Boaz and we are his Ruth. We are his lady. We are his Gentile bride. What a marvelous picture. Ruth is all about the romance of God's redemption. The remainder of chapter 4 explains... Another reason why the book of Ruth was so significant to the Hebrews. It cast a light on the origins of the most important family in Hebrew history. In fact, the most important family in all the earth. And we're not talking about the Windsors of Great Britain or the Kennedys of Massachusetts or the Bowdens of Tallahassee or the Waltons of Walton Mountain. We're talking about the family of David. God will later promise to David that his sons will sit on the throne of Israel forever and that his heir will establish an eternal kingdom and reign over all the earth. Boaz and Ruth, they have a baby boy. They name him Obed. Obed has a son. He names him Jesse. And Jesse has a son that he names David. And years later, many branches down the family tree, A son of David is born, whose name is Jesus. And Jesus becomes the fulfillment to all of the promises that God has made to the family of David. In keeping with the allegorical aspects of the book, there's another interesting point here. The Hebrew word Obed means serving. And it's no accident that the union between Ruth and Boaz produced a child named Serving. Guys, that's exactly what happens when you and I embrace our Boaz, Jesus Christ. God births in us a desire to serve God by serving others. Serving becomes our nature. It becomes our way of life. It becomes the desire of our heart. I love what the ladies of Bethlehem say to Naomi in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 4. Remember, these are the same ladies who earlier called her Mara or bitter. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative. And may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. If you're a single sister tonight, may the Lord bless you with a Boaz. And if you're a single brother, may he send you a Ruth. If you're married, 
May the Lord bless us all with daughters and daughter-in-laws like Ruth and sons and son-in-laws like Boaz. And if you're a person tonight who feels lonely, you feel out of place everywhere you go, you feel like a stranger in your own home, then there's a Boaz who has his eye on you. He loves you. He purposely tosses out little bundles of blessing for you to pick up. He's already paid your redemption price and he wants to take you as his bride. His name is Jesus. Lie down at his feet and do what he says. Father, thank you for this wonderful story and for the marvelous implications both historically, prophetically, but also personally for our lives today. We thank you that you have wooed us and you have loved us and you have seen us from afar and you have drawn us to be your bride. And you have become our near kinsman, our almighty God has come and has become a man who has become one of us so that you could be in position to redeem us and to save us and to make us your own. We thank you, Lord, that you have redeemed the whole earth so that you could have the bride. And we are honored, Lord. And we know we are loved. And we thank you. And we want to be so close to our Boaz. We want to embrace Jesus with all our hearts. And we want to love him more. We want to grow in our relationship with him. Help us, Lord, to grow in grace and knowledge in the days ahead by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.